Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops, a former D1 Hooper and current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Amari for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're always blessed to be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport. And before we introduce our amazing guest today, I do want to let everybody know we've been getting your reviews, we've been getting your ratings, we've been getting your comments, and we appreciate you guys so much. We're so close to 200 reviews on Apple. So get those in. Next week, it'll just be Omari and I, and we will get and to all of those and kind of make up for some lost time here. We don't like to read those when we have guests, and especially today with this guest, where we got to make the most of our time because he has so much information to give. It is the, not one of the, not one of the Detroit Pistons historian from Bad Boys and Beyond. You guys should be checking that out every week as well. Keith Black Trudeau making his first appearance on the Pistons Pulse. We had him over on Motor City Hoops, but the first time on the Pistons Pulse. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. I listen to you guys. And you guys cover my work commutes on like Mondays and Tuesdays every week. Uh, I, I do love this show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was just saying before we turned the uh, the cameras on, this, I think it's the first time I've seen you in the flesh, Keith. I mean, we followed each other for three, four years, interacted a ton, but it's just nice to have the, the face-to-face finally. It's kind of weird. Every it, When I have my own podcast, it's like I, a lot of people that I have uh, on as guests, uh, we commute. Uh, or we communicate with each other for, for years prior to that. And that I, it's interesting. I hear the same thing. It's the first time that they say, even like Isaiah Thomas and Grant Hill, they're like, hey, it's the first time I get to see your face. It, it is pretty interesting. Yeah. And so you guys know, Keith has recently had Grant Hill, who we're going to talk about today, and Isaiah Thomas on their podcast over there. So you guys got to make sure you're checking out what him and Mike Payton are doing. But on today's episode, listen, I tried to bring Keith on to do the history of the Pistons and it turned into like a three episode thing. So we're going to try to keep this as short as possible, but we're going to get into the details. We're going to talk Amari. We're going to talk Grant Hill. We're going to talk the formation of the going to work squad, talk about some of those guys and try to keep it to an hour, a little bit more, you know, just what we can do. So Keith, let's start with the aforementioned Grant Hill. And let's actually start towards the end of this. This is something as somebody just recently joined the Pistons fan base, I don't fully understood or didn't fully understand what kind of happened with Grant Hill at the end that ended up him leaving town. Here's kind of the interesting thing that that I think here's a misconception that people have is that Grant Hill was as frustrated with the the lack of success uh, of the Pistons throughout his tenure there, and he was just looking at, uh, for the first door. Uh, that's not actually what happened. Um, yeah, the, the Pistons during the mid-90s were just a, a picture of how to mismanage a team with a, a budding young superstar. Uh, that That's not in doubt. But Grant himself, I think, had the confidence that 
because he was Grant Hill that things would eventually get turned around and he just needed a little bit of help and it wouldn't be that difficult. What I think ended it, well, in fact, I know what ended it was the mismanagement of his ankle injury. And he was having arguably the best season of his career, his last season uh, with the Pistons, which is really saying something because he was so good uh, prior to that. Uh, but what happened was it, he, he had suffered a uh, an ankle injury that was misdiagnosed, I think, as a sprain. And they said he'd be back for the playoffs. And actually, they brought him back a little bit before the playoffs. And then he was clearly too hurt to play, it, it clearly in too much pain. And they told him he'd be back for the playoffs. Uh, but the bottom line is the, the doctors misdiagnosed the entire thing. Uh, he, he had a broken bone in his foot, but all they were giving him were MRIs, which is, of course, you know, soft tissue. They weren't, they, were, they, were, they weren't looking at the bone. They were looking at the tendons and the muscle. So he kept, they kept reactivating him, and he kept telling the, the team that, look, my, my foot still really hurts. I, I don't feel any better. And eventually, uh, I think the lead doctor kind of put it out there that, you know, sometimes athletes think that they're more injured than they are. And that, that really pissed him off. So he went in and got, uh, I think it was Arnie Kander, who was the team trainer. He wasn't even the doctor at the time. Uh, after, I think, game one of the Miami Heat, where he looked terrible, he got destroyed by Jamal Mashburn, who was not a quick guy, but he was going around Grant like Grant was a statue, because that's essentially what Grant was. He couldn't, he couldn't move. So they, long story short, they, they, uh, Arnie Kander takes him uh, to get an x-ray, and as soon as he sees the x-ray, uh, he immediately tells Grant, don't even put your foot on the floor. I'm getting you a wheelchair. Like, uh, I, I think the, uh, I don't know if you can swear on here, but I think Grant said the exact words out of Arnie Cantor's mouth were, were uh, a variation of holy crap. Uh, it, it, it shocked him how badly, uh, like, like Grant's entire uh, ankle had caved in on his foot. Like it, it was uh, horrifying. And at that point, that's the weird thing. Grant had every intention of sticking around and seeing it through, especially with the emergence of Jerry Stackhouse, uh, because at that point the Pistons had a superstar and, and a very high-level number two guy. And everyone knows once you have those two, it's not that hard to find the ref to fill out the rest of the team, right? Uh, but at that point, I think he, he felt, and I think rightfully so, so um, betrayed by the organization that they didn't uh, stand up for him when he told them that his there was something really wrong with his foot that at, at that point I, I think he was um, he was ready to look at other options and I, I don't think Joe Dumars and also keep in mind this was Joe's as soon as that season ended this was Joe's very first uh, role as managing an NBA team was to re-sign Grant Hill that that summer was when he officially took over and what he essentially told Grant was uh you know, you go out and you you look at other situations, and I'm going to go on a, a trip to Europe, and then when I come back, we'll talk. And that's just not. I, I think he, he Grant really uh, took it differently than how Joe meant it, uh, because Grant didn't really feel like a priority. And when you're dealing with a guy that's you know one of the top five guys in the league at that point, and that's really not you want them to make you uh, want to make them feel like they are they are your number one priority. And Grant really didn't take it that way. So, and he was the number one free agent at the time. Uh, nobody really thought Tim Duncan was going to leave San Antonio except for Orlando. Tracy McGrady was on his way up, but he wasn't seen as being at Grant's level. 
So Grant was the one guy that had every team in the league with cap space lining up to pitch him offers. And Grant really didn't like any of the situations except for Orlando. And Orlando, to their credit, gave him a very strong pitch. They nearly landed Tim Duncan as well as he and Tracy McGrady. They almost had a super team before you know, we realized super teams were a thing. Uh, but yeah, at, at that point, I think as soon as Grant visited Orlando, I think that's when he realized uh, that, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't even feel the need to talk to Joe anymore. I, this is a much better situation for me. I'm gone. I sat down with Grant Hill last summer after he came up with his autobiography, uh, which is called Game Fight, if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, one thing he did talk about in his book was just the team construction side. Obviously, the team lost Allen Houston, I believe, to the Knicks, and he talked about how they mismanaged that situation. Uh, just beyond the injuries with Grant Hill, just what were some of the mismanagement, maybe as far as you're a rebuilding team and trying to surround this guy with talent, and they just didn't do a good job of that? Okay, so this is the funny thing. This is almost like an inverse of Kate Cunningham, where as soon as Kate Cunningham was picked, he was the number one guy. Uh, all of Detroit wanted him picked number one. He was kind of anointed before he even played in summer league. He was seen as, this is our savior. Grant really wasn't that. He, uh, the, the number one prize in Grant's draft was actually Glenn Robinson from Purdue. Uh, he was the guy that everybody... It looked, I, I actually sat in the Pistons... Uh, draft party at the palace for the 94 draft. I was sitting next to Don Cheney, who was the coach. Like everybody wanted Glenn Robinson. And when the Pistons landed third, uh, it was pretty clear that Robinson and Kidd were going to go one and two and Grant would probably go three. It was that clear cut even at the time. So, you know, the, the mood was, yeah, hey, we're, we're going to get a good player, but you know, we missed out on the superstar. And then Grant Hill played his first game and we all realized, uh, holy crap, we've got something special. Like that's the very first like two or three games. Everybody in Detroit realized, oh my God, we we have the guy. This guy is special, and I think that was almost a curse because immediately management uh, they they tried to to do something drastic every single year of Grant's career. It's not for lack of trying. It's that I, I think they they tried to microwave a, a great team around Grant Hill, and it just never worked. I mean, I could go on. Uh, not Grant's rookie year, uh, getting Oliver Miller, which Omari referenced Grant's book. There's a story in there about Oliver Miller, who was the very first guy that took Grant out after he became a piston, after everyone had warned him specifically, do not go out with Oliver Miller. And it turned into a scene from The Hangover where they get stranded in Canada, and Oliver Miller is trying to show Grant that he can drive down I-75 without hands. <laughs> and, 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 Grant, and Grant is basically looking to escape with his life by the end of the night. Um, uh, yeah, so that it, Grant's rookie year goes very poorly. The very the team is not put together well, even though Grant's clearly the best rookie in the league. I'm sorry, Jason Kidd, he was. Uh, so they they fire him and they they hire Doug Collins and essentially give him the Stan Van Gundy role, where they they make him the coach and GM at the same time, and. Collins, a highly intelligent guy, one of the best broadcasters you'll ever hear, but just couldn't relate to players very well. Uh, he had a, a game of musical chairs going uh, in the backcourt with Dumars, uh, Alan Houston, and Lindsey Hunter. Where all, you know, he had three guards that all wanted to start, only two of them could. And I think that kind of chased Alan Houston uh, out of town, even though he was clearly a, a few, an all-star in the making. And he didn't really want to play for Doug Collins anymore. No one on that team really wanted to play for him after they had played for him. 
so then that, that brings us to the, the summer of 96, which is still the worst offseason in team history where, where uh, Doug Collins low balls an unrestricted free agent in Allen Houston, the top guard in the market, and Allen leaves and just never comes back because the Knicks gave, you know, threw the entire bag at him. And, of course, he leaves. I mean, you can't even blame him for that. That's just poor management. So uh, Doug tries to overcompensate. He trades two first-rounders for, for Stacey Ogman and uh, Grant Long just, just to fill the gaps. It's, it, Ogman was a terrible fit. That team still somehow wins 54 games. Uh, but then he like he goes out the next summer and signs Brian Williams, now known as Bison Daylight, to a huge free agent contract. Uh, never mind the fact that everybody knew that that Bison Daylight just it, he was he was the kind of guy that he got paid to play basketball, but he just didn't have the the passion for it, the consistency, and it kind of took the team down a notch. And that gets Doug Collins fired. And then what? Ninety eight. They trade for Jerry Stackhouse, and that's it's the one great move they made in the entire time that Grant was in uh, in Detroit. Uh, but Doug, it's not enough to save Collins' job. He gets fired. They miss the playoffs. We go to 99, the lockout season. Jerry Stackhouse, who was a, a young, uh, thriving shooting guard, he needs, to, he needs minutes. He needs to start. But the problem is Joe Dumars is still on the team, and everybody knows that uh, Dumars is going up into management. So the coach certainly doesn't, isn't going to bench Joe Dumars, even though at this point in his career, he's, he's basically just a spot-up shooter. He's not guarding anybody. He's not making plays. He's just a guy that spots up. He was still really good at it, but, you know, Stack needed minutes. So, yeah, of course, Jerry Stackhouse wasn't happy, and that 99 season turns into a, a first-round exit where they get dispatched by a Hawks team that shouldn't have been on the court with them. They just – every single year there was something. Uh, they, they, they had one problem, tried to patch it, and another hole pops up in the boat. And then we get to 2000. And there's actually hope with, with Grant and Jerry, despite a, a mediocre season. And, you know, we just went over that. The injuries happen, and then, and then Grant leaves. It's just, it was just one thing after another. There was, there was really no patience. It's kind of the opposite of now where, where fans, including myself, think the Pistons are, are showing a little too much patience, that they need to, they need to get brave and start making some moves. Uh, with Grant Hill, they made moves every year, and it wound up setting them back. Let's talk about the move that actually ends up getting made. Keith, Orlando, sign and trade, Grant Hill. What was the perception of that trade? And then we can kind of start moving into, did anybody know that Ben Wallace was the key centerpiece to this trade? Okay, so you can look at this two ways. One, I think everybody in, in Piston land knew that Ben Wallace could play simply because when he was in Washington, he, he killed the Pistons every time they played, even in a minor role. Like he was, he made his presence noticeable on the court. He was the exact kind of center that you would dream about having with the Pistons when they had Grant Hill and Jerry Stackhouse because he would have tied it all together. Uh, nobody thought that he would be an all star or a Hall of Famer. No, that's ridiculous. And anyway, even, even Joe, if anyone says that, they're lying. Uh, but yeah, it goes down as one of the best sign and trade deals ever. I think Orlando was really motivated to, because again, the only team that could have offered it Grant the seven year max was Detroit. So the only way to get around that was to do a sign and trade. So I think it was that important to Orlando uh, to give him that seventh year max and essentially keep him in Orlando for the entirety of his prime that they didn't really mind it uh, when, when Joe asked for uh, Ben Wallace and Chucky Atkins. It, it backfired horribly. 
but yeah, that, that wound up, like you said, that wound up being the foundation of, of a championship team that nobody saw coming. When you look back at just how that team came into fruition, how much was it was, I mean, you, I, you identified talent, but how much was it was just, I don't want to say luck, but luck too. I mean, there's luck in, in any process and for the team to gel maybe as quickly as it, it did was something that few people could predict back in 2001. There, there was an old theory going around among Piston fans that I kind of agree with that Joe had a clairvoyance when it came to players that he played against. Because all of his, 90% of his best acquisitions were all guys that he, that were still playing when he was in the league. And he was batting a thousand uh, pretty much on, on those guys whenever he brought them in. So I, I think he knew that Ben Wallace was better than how he was uh, perceived. Uh, but it wasn't just Ben Wallace. And halfway through that next season, he gets Corliss Williamson for Jerome Williams. And Corliss Williamson had trouble finding a home. He was a guy that was a tweener, didn't have the three-point range. People wondered, could he was he a, a, a four or a three? He couldn't really guard either position. Uh, but he comes into Detroit and he thrives uh, because they gave him a, a real opportunity, made him a, a, an offensive focal point. Uh, beyond that, uh, after that first year, they go and get Cliff Robinson in a salary dump from Phoenix. They essentially get him, get him for nothing other than cap space. And Cliff Robinson, who was at 34 at that time, people kind of looked at him as, you know, like you would any other 34, 35-year-old big man is. He's on the downside. He comes to Detroit. He actually makes the old defensive team his first year. Uh, winds up being a perfect uh, uh, mentor next to Ben Wallace. It, it, it's, it's just piece after piece of guys uh, that Joe found uh, from his playing days that were undervalued, and he brings them in. Uh, John Barry's another one. Uh, I think no, I don't think Damon Jones played back then, uh, played when Joe was playing, but I, he was another gem that he found. Uh, Dana Barrows came in and contributed a little bit before he retired. Uh, there's just guy after guy. And uh, to put things in perspective, uh, Sports Illustrated had the Pistons to, prior to 01 02. They had them picked 14th in the East, not the league, the East. They had them, I think, as one of the two or three worst teams in the NBA. That team went out and won 50 games. And, you know, I also forgot to mention one more guy, uh, Zelko Robracha, uh, who was a guy that was drafted in the mid 90s. He was a 30 year old uh, when, when Joe brought him over as a rookie. Uh, Mehmet Okor, who Joe drafted in 2001 as a European drafted stash. Uh, like, people get mad at Joe over Darko, but Joe was like batting a thousand on European bigs prior to that. Like, he had every reason to be a little overconfident in European big men uh, because he, he found guys that way, way overperformed what people were expecting of them. But yeah, that, that 02 team, to this day, that, still, that team still has a special place in my heart because. That was the first time that it felt like, um, not like the bad boys, because it wasn't a championship team, clearly, but it, it had that championship medal to them, that vibe, that culture. And that, that team was bigger than the sum of their parts, and that they, they fought their hearts out. They won 50 games, uh, and they got out of the first round. Uh, just They were the surprise team of the NBA that whole season. That, that was, that's still a great team to me. All right, we're going to go to a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue with this and look at the rest of the acquisitions that everybody knows, but we're going to talk about how they happened, how they were perceived, how those guys came to Detroit, and this all came together. Omari will ask Keith that, starting with Mr. Big Shot, Chauncey Billups, when we come back from this short break.
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back with segment two, and we're going to dive right into Chauncey. I think a lot of people know that he was a journeyman before he arrived in Detroit. And sort of along the lines of Ben Wallace, right? Like, you know, the guy has talent, but you probably don't expect him to ascend to the extent that he did. Um, just what was the initial reaction to that trade for Chauncey Billups? And at what point did the maybe his reputation begin to shift? All right, well, that, that's, that offseason of 2002, Joe, and that's weird because the Pistons, I, I just got done talking about how awesomely successful they were and they surpassed everybody's expectations. So everyone kind of thought, okay, we're going to keep this team together. We're going to maybe add a piece or two and move forward. Uh, Joe didn't see it that way. Joe saw, Joe saw a team that had maxed out and went to start, you know, selling on guys while their while their value was high. And the, the first thing he did before that was he, uh, well, that was after Chauncey, but I'm going to get to him later, uh, where he traded Jerry Stackhouse, uh, who was the team leader, who had gotten so much praise for for. Uh, being a playmaker instead of a scorer, uh, he trades him for Rip Hamilton, uh, which was seen as kind of one of those one step back to go two steps forward moves because he he had a better contract. He was a younger player, but no one thought he was better than Jerry Stackhouse, nobody. And then the other move he did was he goes after Chauncey Billups, who was, like you said, Omar, he was, like I think he was the third pick in the draft by Boston in 97. Uh, Rick Pitino gave up on him after half a season. He trades him to Toronto. And he gets injured from there. Uh, he, he bounces around three or four different teams. He, he finally gets an opportunity to play in Minnesota uh, where they sign him as a backup. And then the starter, Terrell Brandon, goes down. And he winds, up ha- he winds up reestablishing himself there and having a really great season. But the problem is Terrell Brandon is supposed to come back the next season and the Timberwolves decide, we're going to keep 30-something-year-old Terrell Brandon over Chauncey Billups, uh, which is kind of head-scratching to me. But anyway, uh, they, they kind of cut him loose. So Billups becomes like the top free agent point guard on the market. And you have 10 or 11 different teams lining up to give him the full mid-level, which I think at that time was like five years, 30-some million. And the, the only way that Joe could differentiate himself from every other team was to tell Chauncey, look, I'm not only going to give you the full mid-level, I'm, I'm giving you the keys to the car. Uh, this is a 51 team. Uh, we're going to bring you in and we're going to promise you the starting job and we're going to go from there because that's how much I believe in you. And that, that worked. That was the, that convinced Chauncey to sign in Detroit over all of those other teams that wanted him. Uh, you know, ju- just for the future, when people argue that Detroit can't land free agents, uh, it's not always about market size. Uh, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's about relationships and, and fit. And in this case it was. And, I, I want to say that the reception was lukewarm. Uh, everybody knew how much uh, Billups had meant uh, to all the teams around the league during free agency. Everyone knew he was a coveted point guard. But in, in Detroit, we weren't even sure we wanted him. There was another guy by the name of Jeff McGinnis uh, that wound up going to the, uh, the Clippers that was more of a, a pure point that everyone thought would be a better fit, whereas Chauncey was more of a, a combo guard. At least that's how he was seen. 
So we weren't really that sold on him, especially with, with the big contract that he got. And I think it kind of made things worse because he, people, no one remembers this, thankfully, but Chauncey had a lot of problems adjusting uh, early on in Detroit. Uh, Chauncey, as promised, started every game, but Chucky Atkins was finishing them. Like, Chucky Atkins was clearly the better player uh, between he and Billups for the first couple months of the season. Like, Chauncey would start the game, uh, but he'd only play like half of it. And in the fourth quarter, uh, Rick Carlisle would be would be playing Chucky Atkins and sometimes John Barry in the fourth quarter over Rip and Chauncey because they just they weren't uh, they didn't have enough experience playing in Rick's system and they didn't have enough chemistry at that point. It, it took a lot of time, uh, but if if you look at like before New Year's, Chauncey was averaging like ten points and three assists and he was shooting or uh, not very well but badly. And, but after New Year's, uh, something clicked, and Chauncey was averaging 19 points. Uh, he was shooting over well over 40% from three. Uh, he had several memorable games. Uh, he, he just destroyed the Lakers one game. Uh, he had a game winner against Golden State. He had a game winner against Chicago. He had a game winner against Atlanta. He had all of these game winners in a very short amount of time, and that's how he got the name Mr. Big Shot. Yeah, like he was long before he even played a playoff game. And of course, from that point on, you know, we remember the the 3-1 comeback in Orlando uh, against Orlando in the playoffs. Billups had 40 in game six and he had 37 more in game seven. And then uh, he eliminates the Sixers playing on a very badly sprained ankle uh, in an overtime game six to get them to the conference finals. And I think at that point, everyone in Detroit was locked in with, okay, this is our franchise point guard. This is the guy we're going to eventually win with. Was Rip showing that same level of this is our franchise two guard. I mean, you touched on him a little bit. And so how was that perceived? And could you start to see, you know, you talked about how Chauncey, Chauncey progressed throughout that year. Did Rip do the same thing? Could you see this is the backcourt of a potential NBA championship or was it more Chauncey and Rip was still kind of finding his way? It was more Chauncey, to be honest with you. Uh, Rip was, he didn't have the lows that Chauncey did, but he also didn't have the highs. He was, he was a very consistent uh, mid-range guy uh, getting, you know, 18 to 25 points just about every night. Uh, but he wasn't doing anything else necessarily. He wasn't seen as a great defender. wasn't seen as a guy that was a great playmaker. He was, he was a guy that was coming off the of screen. That's kind of by design. That's how Rick Carlisle, Rick Carlisle saw him. So, it, it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where they just wanted a guy that would shoot an efficient uh, 18 points a game, and, and that's kind of what they got from him. I don't think Rip really uh, started taking off uh, until he was until Larry Brown became the coach. And ultimately, Flip Saunders, I think, made him his best version of himself. So Rip comes in, uh, Chauncey comes in, of course, two core guys. Uh, Tayshawn, you know, I, I believe he was a, a four-year player at Kentucky, known for his defense coming in. Uh, yeah, I was really young with uh, in those years, but what was the perception of Tayshon before he had that playoff series where it became known, like, okay, like he's a true glue guy. We need his defense. We need his shooting. Yeah, Tayshon, it's kind of interesting. He wasn't really seen as an elite college player, but he was like one of the first college players to go viral. Uh, he had this really crazy start to a game. I want to say it was against uh, North Carolina. I, I'm not 100% sure, but it was while he was with Kentucky. And he, he winds up scoring like their first 17, 18 points of the game. 
uh, like hitting six threes in a row. And it was the first like internet viral uh, video of a, of a uh, college player just going nuts. So that's really the only thing that everybody uh, knew about him. Even though he went to Kentucky, Kentucky wasn't great at that time. They were just okay. So it's not like they were in the final four. Uh, but and, and I'll credit this to Joe. Uh, the Pistons had drafted a small forward the year before by the name of Rodney White. Uh, top 10 pick. He was a one and done out of UNC Charlotte. He was seen as the guy, as like the first like big future talent. Like you, you draft him, you develop him. He was very young. I think he was only 19 at the time. And after a year, uh, Joe, decided, Joe already had seen enough. He, he had seen enough uh, to where he was ready to, to draft someone with more experience because the team was ahead of schedule. He needed a guy that could play now. So he goes out and he and Tayshawn drops to the, like you said, the 20 something pick in the draft. And Tayshawn immediately, I, I remember Summer League, uh, they, they wasn't on TV, but you could see the, uh, you, you heard the reports, the box scores, like Tayshawn was clearly out playing Rodney White in Summer League. And before the season starts, uh, Joe ships off Rodney White and essentially gives Tayshawn, he, he, he anoints Tayshawn as, as that new uh, future piece. And I think we all saw that in preseason, like he could play, but the problem is Rick Carlisle didn't see it that way. Uh, th- this is one of the, the weirdest. Um, all right. Fans have a tendency to, to want the, the rookie to play even when he's not ready. Like this is like the only instance in the history of the Detroit Pistons where the fans were right. And the coach was wrong. Uh, Tayshawn. All right. Let, let's add some context. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Michael Curry. Uh, who was a, a journeyman. I think he, his career is a great story, uh, how many countries he had to play in before he even got his shot in the NBA. Uh, all of that's fine and dandy, but he was also nicknamed uh, by Piston fans the binary man because all his stat line after every game would be ones and zeros. Uh, he, he was a, a very competent defender, but that was essentially it. He wasn't a very good outside shooter, wasn't a playmaker, uh, wasn't a rebounder, what, wasn't really anything other than an intelligent, connected defender, which is valuable, but... It's, that's not the guy you want starting on a playoff team. And the fans were just screaming uh, bloody murder that, that Tayshawn would never get a chance. And Carlisle eventually gives Tayshawn a chance, but he like sets him up to fail because it's against, it's on a road trip, like a three and four against four playoff teams. He doesn't look very good. And then Carlisle uses that as an excuse to pull him. And he really doesn't play that entire season until the Orlando playoff series. Uh, after the Pistons go down, famously, they go down three games to one to an eight seed. And their season is on the verge of collapse. And at that point, Rick Carlisle, uh, he, he finally sees some light and he says, all right, we're, we're just going to throw the kitchen sink at Tracy McGrady because he was the one killing him by himself. So starting at, at uh, game five, he starts giving Tayshon uh, rotation minutes guarding Tracy McGrady. And his length is actually bothering McGrady. It's disrupting him uh, to the point where by game seven, he's playing a significant role. Uh, he's actually scored. I think he has a double figure scoring night uh, as a rookie uh, in a game seven during a season he barely even played. And then that continues on to the, the Philly series where he's actually the hero uh, at the end of, I think it was game two, where, where he hits the, the tying shot to send it to overtime and then he dominates overtime. It's, it's one of the most ridiculous stories. I, I, don't, I can't remember how many times in NBA history a guy has, a rookie, has not played during the season basically at all and then has played more minutes in the playoffs than he did during the season. 
and, and looked extremely uh, confident in, the, in those minutes. It's just a weird situation. But that, that, was, that was Detroit's, that was really the NBA's introduction to Tayshaun Prince was that 2003 playoff. Could you, we, we like to talk about cores, right, Keith, especially this current iteration of the Pistons. Right. Did, did the Pistons feel like after that playoffs, there was this true core of Chauncey, Rip, Tayshawn, and Ben? Like, what is that what the vibe was? And was, as this leads into, as we know, the final acquisition, did people feel like that was enough? Did they feel like they had the surrounding pieces? Was there something lost in that offseason that then what made Rashid necessary? And let's just kind of lead into that. But where, what was the vibe around kind of those four guys? One player away. I think that was the consensus around, uh, by, by most fans when they got swept by New Jersey, which wasn't as bad as it looked because Chauncey had clearly, he was not recovered from that sprained ankle he had suffered in, uh, against Philadelphia. Uh, it, it was one of those things where, yeah, they got embarrassed, but they also, a lot of fans came out of that happy because during that series, they won the number two pick in the draft uh, via Memphis. <laughs> so, it, it was weird getting swept and being happy about it, but everyone was just so looking forward to next season. And the the one thing that the team really lacked, they had Ben Wallace, of course, but it was kind of Ben Wallace on an island. They needed a second big man to play with Ben Wallace. And that's, I think, a lot of the, the reason that came behind the Pistons being so set on Darko Milicic, because they had they felt they had found their small forward in Tayshaun. They didn't need to look at Carmelo Anthony, but they needed a second big next to Ben Wallace. And then I, I think it was clear to the Pistons very early on that Darko was not that guy and they had made a mistake. Uh, I think they held out hope, but it was very clear Darko's rookie season where, yeah, I, I think behind closed doors, they lost faith in him quickly. And so, and, and this is the other great thing that Joe did. Joe didn't do what Doug Collins did. He didn't make a panic move. Uh, he patiently waited. He knew he had two first-round picks in the next draft that he could use as bait. Uh, he had a bunch of expiring contracts that he could, he could use as bait. And Rasheed Wallace was being talked about actually since the beginning of the season because he wasn't happy in Portland and Portland was getting ready to rebuild. So he was an obvious trade candidate. And not a whole lot of other teams had the ammo to go and get him because they didn't have the picks. They didn't have the expiring contracts. It was really the Pistons and a couple other teams. And what kind of dealt uh, everybody a, a bit of a blow was when uh, Portland trades Rasheed Wallace to Atlanta. Uh, for Theo Ratliff and Sharif Abdul-Rahim. So everyone thought the door was maybe closed on that. But there was no reason for the Hawks to keep him either because they were a terrible team and Rashid was was at the end of his uh, contract. Like, <laughs> he probably wasn't going to resign there. So it, we're, we're up to trade deadline day, and the name Rashid Wallace is still being floated around as a possibility. But... I know all the beat writers at the time, I, I want to say Chris McCoskey especially, were, were telling everybody, look, this is probably not going to get done. You're probably going to get a, a conservative, you know, cap clearing move or maybe a second round or something that's not really consequential. And then out of nowhere, it kind of hits maybe an hour before the deadline that the Pistons do land Rasheed Wallace, uh, that they send the, the two first round picks, they send uh, Lindsey Hunter and some role players away uh, for Rasheed Wallace. It's one of the best trades in Piston history. It might be the best trade in Piston history, uh, midseason anyway. Uh, it might be the best midseason trade in NBA history, to be honest, because if you look at the history of midseason deals, those do not result in championships, not the big ones. Uh, this this one was just, it, it microwaved a great team overnight. It, 
it's really hard to put into words how exciting that was because you could see the fit talent-wise, like how he would fit in perfectly as long as, as the chemistry was there. And thank God it was. Let's talk about the block and what that was like, right? Um, like just this historic moment, just getting into that playoff, into that playoff run as a whole. I know that people uh, expected uh, them to make a deep playoff run just based on the previous season, but how strong were those hopes, right? Like how how realistic at the time did it appear that the Pistons could go that far? Because obviously the Lakers were stacked, uh, but just what was the general vibe around the team as far as if they could actually get it done? Like, all right, so the, the vibe prior to the Rashid trade is that it would be a re- repeat of the previous two years where the Pistons would make the playoffs. They probably won a series or two, and then they would meet a superior team and they would get dumped. Uh, and the superior team that season was the Indiana Pacers. They had crushed the Pistons three times. Uh, already prior to that deal. They had the best record in the league. Uh, They they were clearly the class, I think, of the entire league. They were outplaying everybody, including the Lakers. And everyone was just waiting for the Lakers to turn it on in the playoffs, right? But but once that Rasheed trade happened, uh, the the Pistons were just clearly far and away even better than the Pacers. Uh, Just to give you some numbers going into that postseason, uh, they had 21 games with Rasheed starting, uh, they only lost four of them, and two were at the buzzer. Uh, their point differential of 13.3 was the exact same one as the 96 Bulls. Uh, granted, this is a quarter of the season versus a full season. I'm just giving you the, I, I'm, I'm giving you the, the scope of how dominant they were uh, that last quarter of the season. Uh, they held eight teams under 70 points. Uh, five teams in a row they held under 70. The, the second most of all time is two. And... Yeah, it, it was just, it, it was utter domination. Uh, so unfortunately, Rasheed Wallace suffered a plantar fascia issue that kind of, it, it, it kind of made the Pistons defense mortal in the playoffs. Uh, but, but going on, they were still, like defensively, they were crushing people. Uh, they crushed the Bucks in the first round. Uh, they go to New Jersey. They, they nearly lose the series. They have to they have to gut that one out against a very good New Jersey team, but they do it, and they crush them in Game 7. And then, like you said, the block, uh, the conference finals against their rivals uh, from Indiana, I think those were whoever won that series, I think, was going to win the championship. And we talk about the block, but there was like 20 blocks in that game before that that the Pistons had made. Uh, it's, it's the greatest combined block shot game of all time, I believe. I think the Pistons total is the second or third most of all time in that game. It was the best defensive game I've ever seen in my life. Uh, people talk about the, the scores like in the 60s. Yeah, but I think any team in the league would have problems in that game. That was just awesome. Uh, but yeah, we, we talk about the block, but I think Rasheed Wallace's guarantee was, was very, very important. Uh, because it, it gave them the, com- the, the rest of the team the confidence to, to back him up that game. And even though nobody shot well at all, uh, the effort displayed, I, I think, reflected the intensity and the belief that they had that they were the better team and they, they could win a championship. To be honest with you, I think the finals against the Lakers was the easiest series they had because the Lakers were the only team that did not take them seriously. And, and by the time the Lakers knew what was happening, it was already over. Uh, the Pistons had already clamped them down. One final question here, Keith, before we go to another break. We've talked about the mainstays, right? And, and you may have answered this a little bit, but what is or who is the unheralded move or player? Like, obviously, that five 
the greatest five ever assembled. You know, the chemistry was crazy, but is there a guy off the bench? Maybe it was a specific move. What is something you would point to that you feel like maybe is a little underrated that kind of put that all together or helped keep the glue together? Is there something that maybe isn't, maybe it's just something that's not talked enough about Keith that you would like to point out here before we move on to some other stuff? So you're saying uh, of the old four team, like an unsung yeah. Okay, I, w- I would say Lindsey Hunter. A lot of people are going to say Mike James because he came up, he came to Detroit with Rashid in the trade, and he was great during the regular season. They he and Lindsey Hunter, who they traded by the way, they traded Lindsey Hunter. And Lindsey Hunter was waived as part of the you know uh, handshake agreement, and he came back to sign with the Pistons, which would not be allowed today. Uh, but they were fans called them the Pitbulls because when when Larry Brown executed his full court press, and you have not seen a full court press in the NBA. Uh, until you've seen the the O four Pistons do it, it's almost like a college team where they they made other teams look like amateurs. Like if you didn't have a an all star caliber point guard, you were going to turn the ball over fifteen times and a half. Uh, if Larry Brown wanted to really crush you, so Mike James didn't play as much in the playoffs because, as I said, Rasheed Wallace's foot injury hurt his ability to move. Uh, to run the floor. So they couldn't really do the press in the playoffs. But Lindsey Hunter remained a big part of the rotation. He was guarding Jason Kidd a lot of the times in the playoffs. Uh, he was guarding Gary Pitt. He was he was guarding the other team's best ball handler in just about every series uh, whenever Chauncey had to check out. Uh, Lindsey Hunter in general, I think his, his career as a Piston is very underrated. Uh, but in that 4 team, I... I, I it's hard to say that they don't win the championship without him, but he certainly made it easier. I love it. All right, we do have to go to a short break. When we come back, I had a listener reach out with very specific question. couple guys a little further back he wanted you to talk about. And then, of course, Keith Black Trudeau is a current Piston uh, fan and analyst and has some thoughts. So we'll dive into a little bit of the current roster as well. Amari will lead us off right after this short break. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back with segment three, and we're going to get into a question we had from one of our listeners and then get into the current state of the team as well. Uh, so Rick Colloin, I hope I pronounced that correctly, was curious about Dave Bing and Dave DeBusher. I think the average Pistons fan is probably more familiar with Dave Bing. Just, you know, of course, he's had a presence in the city on the business side, former mayor, uh, and probably played a little bit more recently as well. But just what are your recollections of those two players? I, I think fans might remember Dave Bing as the original Killian Hayes hater. Um, <laughs> right, so Dave, Dave Bing and Dave DeBusher, they're, they're kind of, they're, their stories are actually kind of intertwined in a way, so I, I could probably talk about both of them at once. Uh, Dave Busher was the original. All right, we had this thing called the Territorial Draft back then. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. All right, so prior to, I want to say, 1966, uh, the NBA had a rule where anybody... Uh, any, any amateur player, any college player that was local to your to your franchise within a certain radius, you could forfeit your first round pick and simply claim their rights. And the the, the Pistons used it twice. Uh, 
the very first time that they used it was, um, oh, let, let me just, let me step back for a second. You know, Will Chamberlain was a territorial pick from Kansas. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Do <laughs> you know? Okay. So yeah, just a quick antidote. Will Chamberlain went to Kansas, but the Philadelphia yeah. Warriors claimed him. I was going to say, how did that, how is that in their territory? Because he went to, they claimed, uh, and they were awarded that, they claimed because he grew up in Philadelphia, went to high school in Philadelphia, that he was still local to them. Of course, the, the NBA did away with uh, the territorial draft in the mid-60s because there was this guy named Luel Sindor, later known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who grew up in New York and then went to school at UCLA. So who gets his rights? Is it the Knicks or the Lakers? So the NBA decided to do away with it at that point because they didn't want to get you know taken to court. All right. So anyway, Dave DeBusher, uh, Detroit legend, one of the five best in my estimation, one of the five best players ever uh, out of the city of Detroit. Uh, Detroit high school legend goes to to University of Detroit, uh, is a star there. Uh, just an excellent, excellent player. And the, the Pistons take him as a 1962 territorial draft pick. Uh, he's not an all-star his first couple of seasons, but he's still, he's clearly really, really good. Uh, the problem is in the 1960s, the Pistons were run uh, way worse than the Pistons have ever been run in any of our lifetimes. It was that bad. So to give you some context, uh, prior to Dave DeBusher's third season, and, and by the way, Dave DeBusher was also a, a pitcher for the, the Chicago White Sox. So he was doing that in his offseason instead of you know working on his game. or yeah, what, I mean, he was just a couple of years, but the point is he was a two-sport athlete. So... What happens, uh, Charlie Wolf, who was, who was the coach at that point, uh, going into DeBusher's third season, uh, they fire him early on in that season. Fred Zoller, the owner, does. And he was the coach NGM, so now he has two vacant spots. So it, instead of doing a search, it's midseason. He can't really afford to do one. So he hires um, Don Watrick, who is the WXYT sports director and also the broadcaster. <laughs> he was with no real experience. Uh, prior, he, they basically hired George Blaha to run the team. <laughs> so, and, and what Watrick's first move is to go into the, instead of, again, we have a season, so he can't really do a big search. So he goes to the Pistons locker room and offers Dave DeBusher the head coaching job if he would quit baseball. So their 24-year-old, uh, not even an all-star yet, power forward, is now also the head coach, which... Yeah, he's the. I, th I think he's still the youngest head coach ever in pro sports. I think to this day, uh, it, it was just a, a calamity. And in the 1960s, you only had like four, like four or five teams. I think five or six teams per conference. And the Pistons missed the playoffs all three years that that DeBusher was the head coach. And it's not his fault either. Uh, he was an all star. It's just it was way, way, way too much on on, on the plate of a guy in his mid twenties. Right. So uh, DeBusher's third season, and this is how we'll transition to Dave Ben. I, I looked and you were correct. He was 24. There was also a Major League Baseball for the Indians that was also 24. So depending on birthdays and stuff like that, uh, that holds true with the age. So 1966 draft, uh, we didn't have a lottery back then, but it wasn't by record either. How it went was we had a coin flip between the two worst teams every year to make sure that there was no, it was even anti-tanking back in the 60s. So we had a coin flip between the two worst teams. And 
we had this major college star, the biggest star in college coming out for the draft was a guy by the name of Cassie Russell who went for the University of Michigan. So that was who everybody wanted, of course. And ironically, uh, the Pistons would have used their territorial pick, but that was the year that the NBA decided we're going to do away with the territorial pick. So it came down to a coin flip between them and the Knicks. And of course, they lose the coin flip and everybody locally is crushed. They have to settle for the second pick. Uh, who turns out to be, to be this this kid out of uh, Syracuse, by the way, of D.C., called uh, Dave Bing, that no one really had ever heard of because, you know, you weren't seeing Syracuse games on TV in the 1960s. So uh, according to uh, Jerry Green, who worked at the Detroit News, he was covering the Pistons at the time, I think the first question that Dave Bing got asked once he got to Detroit was, what's it like to not be wanted? The very first question, uh, because nobody, everyone, yeah, everyone had Cassie Russell remorse. And it turns out that Dave Bing was way better than Cassie Russell. Not that Cassie was bad. He had a good career. But uh, Dave Bing, one of the best, you know, one of the top 75 players of all time. And look, I, I'm trying not to speak out of turn here. I'm just going on, you know, the handful of games that I've seen of Dave Bing playing in Detroit in his prime. And also, you know, reports that I've read from people covering Dave Bing. And they all say the same thing that, that my eyes have told me. Uh, Dave Bing... If I had to compare him you know, to a modern player, it would be Derrick Rose. Uh, Dave, Dave Bing was the first, and I, Oscar Robertson was more of a, a big athlete than a, than a quick guy. He didn't beat you with quickness as much as his size. I want to say Dave Bing was the, the very first point guard uh, in, the, in the NBA to be clearly the best uh, raw athlete on the floor and just beat people with athleticism. Uh, he would get in the air sometimes. I don't even know he knew what he was going to do. He would, he, would, he would simply create offense simply by being quicker, stronger, and jumping higher than everybody else. Uh, it, it drove his coaches nuts. Uh, he had coach after coach year after year that tried to rein him in a little bit and tried to get him to be more of a pure point guard, but he just wasn't. He, it, he, he loved to – his way of playing basketball uh, was kind of the herky-jerky – you know, style we see from guys like Russell Westbrook today where, you know, he would attack and then figure out what to do once he got to the rim. And so how he and DeBusher mesh, uh, their last season together, uh, DeBusher is finally relieved of his head coaching duties, uh, thankfully for him, because he and Dave Bing was going into his second season. He was rookie of the year the season before. Uh, they, they improve. They improve a lot uh, as a duo. And the Pistons make it to the playoffs. And in the first round, they see uh, Bill Russell's Celtics. And they actually win two of the first three games. Uh, Dave Bing is just killing the Celtics' backcourt. Uh, but, of course, you know the, the Celtics come back and they win the next three. They win the Series 4-2 because Bill Russell puts his foot down. And the unfortunate lesson that, that ownership takes away from that is that we need a center to, to play against Bill Russell. It's not that we competed. It's that you know they have a center and we don't. So they decide to make the very bad uh, idea, or, or they had the very bad idea to go out and trade uh, Dave DeBusher to the Knicks for Walt Bellamy. Uh, Walt Bellamy, uh, if you look at his stats, they're unbelievable, but he was the very first, like, I don't want to say stat stuffer, but he was the type of guy that put up great numbers, and he was on his fourth team in seven years. Uh, they, they called him the Undertaker because you, he would bury the teams that he played for. Uh, that sounds harsh because he's in the Hall of Fame primarily because of his numbers. I'm just saying that's how he was perceived. And it all played out that way. Uh, we just I just talked about Rasheed Wallace, uh, the impact that he had for the Pistons. 
Dave DeBusher was exactly that guy for the New York Knicks. Uh, Dave DeBusher, and I haven't gotten into his game. Uh, I should have. Uh, 6'6", power forward, a little short even for that time, uh, but he was strong as an ox. Uh, very good outside shooter. Uh, hell of a defender, eight-time all-defense. He could guard three, four positions. Uh, excellent pack. He was basically, I would compare him to Draymond Green uh, with a jump shot. Like he was that kind of glue guy where he would he would do everything for you as long as you didn't ask him to be a number one scorer. So he goes to the Knicks and and he takes them from good to great. Uh, they're in the conference finals that year, and then the next year they have the best record in the league. They win a championship, and uh, Willis Reed get their center gets hurt, their MVP gets hurt in the nineteen seventy finals. So they have to go three games with him not playing really two of them uh, or two and a half. And who do you think is guarding Will Chamberlain in that series? It's Dave DeBusher, like all six five, six six. Dave DeBusher guarding Will freaking Chamberlain, and he does a credible job uh, uh, guarding him. He was just uh, just an excellent, excellent. Uh, I-, I wish he was appreciated more in Detroit. It's almost like sacrilegious that he got traded uh, because being a, a local product, being a Detroit guy, being being an excellent basketball player, it's just bad management. And so Dave Bing is left, and they bought him out, of course, with Walt Bellamy and without DeBusher. And then they land the number one pick, and they get Bob Lanier. So you you would think that, look, that's when people think of the Pistons in the 70s, you, you think of Bing and Lanier, uh, the Hall of Fame point guard and the Hall of Fame center. And you wonder why they didn't win more. It's because they were never healthy together. All right, so Dave Bing had, a, had an accident as a child uh, where he had, a, I think, a nail stuck into his eye, and it was he was saved. Uh, but he had some issues with it. And I want to say in the 71 season, which would have been Lanier's second season, uh, he got scratched in that same eye. And it, it debilitated him for the rest of his career. And he had problems. Of course, he could still move, but he he really couldn't shoot. He didn't have the, the depth perception. His, his outside shot really struggled. And teams know he knew he couldn't shoot from the outside, so they played him for the drive. And he wasn't nearly as effective as he was before. Before, he was an MVP caliber point guard. I want to stress that. Like, he was every bit, uh, he was seen as being every bit like the, the offensive threat like Derrick Rose was. Like, he was that, he was seen as that dominant of a guard. And, yeah, and that's kind of how it ends uh, with for Dave Bing in Detroit. Uh, the Pistons get sold from Fred, by Fred Zollner to uh, uh, Bill Davidson in 1974. And he had, Bing had had this like handshake agreement with uh, Fred Zollner because he had had some deferred money on his contract, but it wasn't in writing. So the Pistons had owed him some back pay. And when Davidson took over, he thought that, that he wasn't obligated to honor that. So, you know, Dave Bing immediately says, I, I'm not going to play for you. I want to get traded. So they, they trade him to the Bullets. And that's kind of the, the end of Dave Bing's tenure in Detroit. Uh, Bing and, and DeBush are both members of the top 75 all-time team. They're, they're both uh, Hall of Famers, uh, both seen in very, very high regard in NBA circles. Uh, it, it's just kind of sad that that era of Pistons history is kind of forgotten about or, or dismissed because the, the Pistons were horribly mismanaged and they didn't have any team success. Before we get out of here, Keith, let's talk about the current iteration of the Pistons. You talked a little bit earlier that, you know, maybe 
this team is a little too patient, you know, compared to what the teams were doing back then. But I think overall, we've talked about it. We talk all the time. We text about the team and moves. I think you're still in a, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like you're in a decent place. Where are you at right now with the restoration, this team, the acquisition of Asar Thompson, you know, even this off season a little bit where I know a lot of fans were very frustrated with said patience. Okay, I'm of two minds on this. Uh, one, I, I think it's okay that Troy Weaver didn't make a splash uh, because that's he's made it clear that's not how he how he plans to build the team. He plans to build it through the draft. Troy Weaver has had uh, what seven, eight first round draft picks in four years. So that that look, that's been his chosen method to improve the team, and that makes sense. He says he he cut his teeth as a scout, but I we're getting into his fourth season, and I think it's time to see results. I, I don't think you can have longer than a, a four-year rebuild and then tell me you know what you're doing. I, I'm sorry. that I'm not saying the Pistons have to make the playoffs. I'm not even saying they have to make the play-in. I, I'm saying they, they have to be competitive. They need to be playing games at the end of March, early April, at the end of the season, where you guys are, are here on the podcast talking to each other about what do the Pistons need to do to make the play-in? Uh, who do they need to beat? What does the rest of their schedule look like? Like those conversations need to be had. We we don't need to be having another season where we're in December already talking about who's going to be uh, you know the, the first, second, third pick in the draft, and and how would they fit you know fifteen months from now. That, that's not how. Look, everyone was on board with the rebuild. Everyone knew the rebuild would be painful, but at, at a certain point, uh, you you need to start showing results. It doesn't have to be a five hundred season. Doesn't have to be even forty wins. It just you just have to be showing me that you're making progress on the court and getting results. I don't want to hear about individual numbers anymore. I don't want to hear about uh, player X. Um, yeah, we're 30 games under 500. We lost this game by 25 points. But look at, did you see the dunk that Jay Nivey had? I don't care anymore. Uh, the, the team needs to be showing results. Uh, that That is my view on it. And I, I really think that they need to find somebody else uh, to finish the rebuild. Uh, if Troy Weaver can't find a way to put a, a competent team on the court. I, I know that sounds harsh because I, I support what he's done so far, but this is the year we need to start making the transition to to let people know that the team is going somewhere. So you're in mid-season trade uh, mode, sounds like. You want something to happen that can kind of push this team to like that next stage. Well, not necessarily. Like I said, okay. it, I, I think that Troy's hanging his, at least to me, he's sending the message that he's hanging it, his hat on the guys that he drafted. And look, you can say that they're very young, and they are. But you know who was really young last year? Oklahoma City was really young. Orlando was really young. If the Pistons have a season like Orlando had last year, I'd be happy. Like that, they were competitive up until the very end. I'm good with that. I think they only won 34 games or whatever, but you know what? It, they were clearly, they. when you looked at them play, they looked like a team that was good and improving and would be clearly better the next season. That's all I want to see from the Pistons. I, I don't, look, if if the opportunity comes up to grab somebody that could make an impact, then by all means, go for it. But I don't think you should have to mortgage your future or trade Jaden Ivey, which is, I know he's the popular guy that, that people are talking about trading for, for a veteran, I don't think they should need to do that. I, I think if you you look, you're the GM. You hung your hat on your ability to draft players. You you have no future picks because you traded for for current picks. You used your assets on that. I, you've stocked your roster with your own draft picks. I, I think that should be enough uh, to at least show that you have a competitive team. And if it's not, 
then we need to find somebody that will move the team in another direction. Because I don't, I don't know that Troy Weaver has shown a propensity yet for being that guy that would trade, you know, a young player for a, a veteran. I, I don't think he's he's wanting to do that. And look, you still have a great trade chip in Bo Young. You don't, you can move forward without trading a young player. I'm just saying, uh, I, I don't think this roster. Uh, is as bad as people think it is. And maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. But I, I, I think I have more belief in Isaiah Stewart than I think most people do. I, I think that he is going to be a very key piece. I think he's the type of player that when when he's on a playoff team, everybody immediately sees the value that he brings. I think on a bad team, it, he, he kind of looks worse than he is. Yeah, next season will certainly be, I think in many respects, a pivotal season, uh, just understanding where this team is in the rebuild. I don't want to say make or, or, or break, but I think this season will say a lot. Uh, Keith, we'll close out with one last question. Who is a player in franchise history that you feel like isn't discussed enough or maybe isn't known enough by modern Pistons fans? Oh, God. Um, you got an hour? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just so many. There's uh, like I, I mentioned this to Bryce years ago when that on his old podcast, but the Pistons actually had a Hall of Fame backcourt uh, before they were even an NBA team. Uh, Bobby McDermott and Buddy Jeanette. Bobby McDermott, for uh, a lot of people, is, is considered the best basketball player in the first half of the 20th century. And you know, when, the, when the Pistons were in the National Basketball League prior to the NBA, they were, they were, they were almost a super team with him. Uh, but if you don't want to go back that quite that far, and I understand that, uh, you know, we, we can settle on a guy by the name of, uh, God, do I, like, I want to say Adrian Dantley, but even though everyone knows Adrian Dantley, but I think people look at him in a, in a negative light because how things ended and no one really understands how good he was those first two years he was in Detroit. <sighs> um, like I've been over Lanier, uh, DeBusher would have been my answer prior to, you know, the opening of this podcast. Uh, I mean, there's, there's just so many, um, a, a real fun player, uh, Eric Money, uh, guy in the 1970s, wow. late, late 1970s, uh, kind of this like Ish Smith type jitterbug. Uh, no one has ever heard of him. Uh, I, I found that out by playing that, that Squares game where like you ask for a former, <laughs> yeah, like 0.1% of the people. Uh, and then the, the comments were immediately when I posted the picture, who the heck is Eric Money? Uh, Eric, Eric Money is a really, really fun player uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, very, like I said, very much like Ish Smith, uh, a jitterbug, way quicker than anyone else in the court, a uh, very good mid-range shooter. Uh, I, I wish there was more I could point to. Uh, there is some film on him, but I, I wish there was more I could point to to the casual fan that could look him up because I think people will have a lot of fun watching him. All right, Keith, man, this was amazing. We actually kept it to an hour. You were awesome getting through all of this. This was incredible. We are definitely going to have you back. I think this will become a thing where we'll bring you back. We'll talk about another era or a certain player, a couple certain players. And then next time, hopefully get more of your thoughts on the, the current team. I know we didn't give you quite as much wiggle room with that. But before we let you go, let everybody know where they can find you, follow you, and definitely listen to the podcast. My name is Keith Black Trudeau. I, I co-host uh, with Mike Payton a podcast called Bad Boys and Beyond. Uh, we are a NBA history-centric uh, podcast uh, with a focus on the Detroit Pistons, but we try to keep it every other week uh, going from Pistons-centric episode to a, a broader NBA history-centric episode. Uh, our, our redrafts are a lot of fun. We always bring, we like to bring guests on to participate. 
but I, I grew up as a, a Pistons fan. I've been a Pistons fan for over 30, 35 years now. And I, I have a, uh, a, a Twitter, well, I guess it's now called X. No, you know, screw that. I'm calling it Twitter. Uh, I, I have a Twitter account, uh, charlatan, uh, one word, 28 is my handle. I, I post little videos. I have an extensive basketball library. Uh, that I like to draw clips from uh, that people maybe uh, hadn't seen or about players that maybe people don't know about. I, I, it's just my avenue to share my love of uh, basketball history with everybody. So those are the two ways you can uh, interact with me uh, more if you want to. Keith, you've got to be in the top 0.5% of Hoops Grizz players. You, you flexed me earlier this week, but I posted my 75%. I think you had 99 point something. Uh, which was probably low for you. You probably, come on, man. He's <laughs> uh, just next level with that. Uh, th- that was Keith Black, you uh Pistons historian. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll close this out. Uh, thanks to our audio producer, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirk and Crawford. Also, big shout out to Wes, as always. And we'll talk to you all next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.